Okay, today I'm going to do housekeeping, verb review, and then discussion, whatever you guys might have. Okay. So, yeah, the way we'll handle this is we'll talk about the exam real quick. And then if you have any uh, blanks in your workbook or in your TNT, we can fill those in real quick. And then uh, talk about the summer Greek and verb review. That should take up the main part of the class today. And then if you have any questions after that, things that have been lingering, things you want to know about, we can talk about those things. But yeah, the final exam, as you can see on these nicely new, uh, newly cut half sheets for the prep, um, it's going to be mainly focused on translation, as you can see, because the paradigm section is pretty small. It just has a rehash of the, uh, the noun paradigm, just so that way you have it there in your test sheet, because I know you guys know it, um, but a good review, and you'll have it there so you can help your parsing. And uh, in the verb chart, we've done the pain. It has the four quadrants. We're just going to be doing the left-hand side. That's it. So that's what I mean by the primary side, primary primary active, and middle passive endings. Okay? Does that make sense on the paradigms? So that'll be pretty straightforward. The grammar, this will be a small section compared to what we're used to. Um, turn to 78 and TNT. It'll be the four uh, rows that we filled in so far. So you guys have to reproduce that. You could do it by rote memorization, or you could just remember how it's put together. That's basically the way to handle that. And just keep luo as your, your main verb that you're using as a representative for this. And uh, just think about where it is on the chart. That's the way best way to remember. Okay, so it's, it's luo, and it's active, so it's going to be on the, the uh, top left-hand side. So that's the best way to think about that. So rather than memorizing, okay, second square over is lu, the fourth, no, don't memorize it that way. But just remember how it's put together. But just for the four that we filled in so far, does anyone not have those filled in? I'm missing one. Okay, which one? The present, middle, middle, passive. Present, middle, passive? Okay. Anyone have that form? You, you want to say yours, Wendell? So Josh can fill it in. Bye, yeah. Oh, uh, that that one is for uh, primary. So primary, so it's one P. So I mean, it stands for primary passive. Principal part, you're right, the first time, yep. So does that make sense, the way what this is telling you? Okay. It's basically telling you where it is on the pane. That's basically what it's telling you. Kind of goes both ways. And it doesn't have a tense formative. No. Now, the future active is the only tense formative you should have on the list right now. Is that correct? Okay. Good. Tense formative for future is sigma. Yep. 
Okay, so that'll be that part of the test. Just the four. Yes, sorry. Yeah, no problem. I had future active and future middle. Those are the two. Yeah, good question. Future passive will be later on. Yes. And then future middle is Lu, Sigma, Omicron, Epsilon, my 1P, 2, I will lose for myself. Yep. Yep. Cool. You okay in that too, David? Great. So that'll be a pretty straightforward part of the test. You know, it'll take some, it'll, we'll take some time to digest it more. I do understand that, but it'll be straightforward on the test. So, sure. Yeah, you've been doing that a hundred times already. Yeah, and the repetition has been intentional. So, I'll, use, I'll stop using the word intentional. I'll use the word deliberate. I like the word deliberate better because everyone says intentional now. Okay. Um, yeah. So that that's what it's saying there. The A, B, C, A through D there. Present active, present middle, passive, future active, future middle. That's just saying we're talking about the uh, Greek tense formation. Okay. That's all I was talking about there. The grammar part will be small and straightforward. Uh, parsing, it'll probably be uh, not, not, not very big, but it'll be, you know, it'll be tough because there'll be some tough words that obviously, you know, just putting the easiest words there, you know, doesn't really help you that much, but some of the tougher ones. Um, maybe see some of the old ones that we've done in the past. So just, that's why I say know your vocab all the way through chapter 19. If you know the vocab and all the lexical forms, then that'll go a long way to helping your parsing, okay? a very long way. So get that vocab really digested. Um, and remember the alpha eta shift. You don't have to memorize it for the test, but just remember how it functions like for words like agape and agapao, things like that, okay? Just just try to re uh, refresh yourself on that. You won't have to fill it in. You won't have to fill the blanks in on that, though. Um, and just uh, go over your, over your square stops. Again, you won't have to memorize it for the test, but I would suggest, you know, to internalize that and know how it affects words like blepo, okay? So the, the P will turn to a C for the future tense, for example. And then that's really good to know because it's going to affect other tenses as well, not just the future, okay? And obviously it affects your noun parsing, but. And then uh, review your contract verbs. Again, you don't have to memorize that whole chart, right? Because that's just for reference. But uh, just kind of go over the rules again and especially remember um, which vowels go with contract verbs, alpha, epsilon, and omicron, and just know how basic vowel changes take place with, voc with uh, contract verbs. And again, we'll cover this in today in the uh, review lecture. And then, so the main thing I want to see you guys uh, work hard on is the translation, because that's been one of the most difficult parts, and rightly so, it's just a tough process. But that's why I want to focus more on translation for, uh, for, the, parse or for, the, for the test here. So again, just if you have your paradigms and your vocabulary, then you can go very far in your translation work, okay? Because if you're getting the right case number gender or the right tense voice and mood, et cetera, for these words, and you already know the lexical forms, then it makes it a lot easier to go through the translations. So again, just really the best way to practice translation is just know your vocab. And uh, you can work on, maybe if you have some blanks in your workbook, some sentences you have not done, just go back and complete them. Or if you've done all that already, work on some of the additional exercises. Just some way to practice or open up your Greek Testament and just try to read. So whatever works for you in that case. And uh, the textbook reading, 
this semester we've covered chapters 11 through 19. So uh, just make sure you've read it because that'll be a question on the test like last semester. You know, did you read it? Yes or no? And it's worth part of your grade. So that, that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's a given. Might as well get the points for that. And again, you don't have to read you know, in super detail. Read very slowly. You can just read through it quickly because we've covered the material already. Or maybe you've already read it. That's fine. You don't have to read it again. But um, you can just do a quick read of that. And uh, don't let future forms of Amy catch you off guard. Again, if you want to memorize it, that's fine. I was talking to, to Bob after class last week. I did memorize the uh, future of Amy uh, back in the day. Um, I've got to the point right now where I can't recite it to you, but I could recognize forms. So that's the idea there. So, in other words, if you see, just make sure you kind of internalize that list. You won't be have to. You won't have to reproduce it on the test. You won't have to write it all out. But there probably will be some of those forms that enter in the test at some point or another. And I don't want them to be a surprise to you. Okay. Basically, if it looks weird, it's probably a future of Amy. <laughs> but I think you'll see that when, when you get to the test, it'll be pretty straightforward to you. So, these are just guidelines on how to prepare for it. But the main thing, again, that's why I set it up the way it is. You know, it doesn't hit hard on grammar because you guys have done great on the grammar. Okay. On all the tests, you guys have done great on that. Um, but the main thing is paradigms and vocab. Because if you know those things, you can get through what? Parsing and translation. Okay. So paradigms and vocabulary. And in this case, you guys know the paradigms pretty well already. So vocab, that's going to be a big part of it. Okay. That makes sense. Any questions on that right now? I'm going to upload this um, on the uh, class website, too. That way the other guys can access it. Or if you want to pull it up there and type it on your computer, make, add your own notes, whatever you want to do. <coughs> that test sound uh, doable, reasonable? And I'm also going to upload that to the uh, class website, too. The, I'll, I'll upload a PDF file and a Word document. that we can print out whatever you want of that test. Summer Greek. Summer Greek is a voluntary 10-week, I'm not even going to say program, because it's not a program. It's just a voluntary self-study thing if you want to do it. <laughs> but I'm just going to show you a preview of it. I still have to write about two pages of it. And I'll upload this one as well. Um, but this is just an example. Uh, week four. And that week is focusing on third declension and personal pronouns. You all see it okay? So BBG 10 through 11. Usually each week covers about two chapters of BBG. And it's very, very straightforward, okay? It, says, it suggests to read TNT pages 18 through 22. So just a few pages that cover those chapters of BBG. Just buzz through it and say, oh, yeah, I remember all that, right? <laughs> and then uh, go back to those two chapters and just review the vocab real quick. And then, uh, and then this will change each week, but look at Appendix 1, and it shows uh, some suggestions for uh, working through the third declension, things you've already done, okay? And then it gives you three words to parse from this translation, Okay. And each week it'll be a different uh, book of the Bible, maybe from the Septuagint, maybe from the New Testament. Um, and it gives you the reference there, too, so that way you can, if you want to study with the commentary, that's all up to you. This is all voluntary. Again, you can spend 30 minutes on this. You can spend five hours. It's up to you completely. 
And then there's a few questions at the end of it that just help you to think about uh, the passage beyond your first translation of it. Okay? Because often we do all the parsing. Okay, so we got the case number, gender, we got the sense, voice, and mood, everything. Um, and we have our initial translation. And then we move on. So this is just a way to think back over it. You know, this, this, this will change each week too. But, you know, in this case, where's the main verb in these verses? Um, is halos being used as an adjective or an adverb? You know, you've learned that that can be one or the other. So just something to help you think more critically. And look back at, and uh, circle any personal pronouns that you see. Because this week is focusing on personal pronouns. So, and then just write down how much time you spent. That will be a benefit to you only, really. Uh, just to say, okay, how much time am I spending? Um, if I'm spending 30 minutes a week, is that helpful? Yes or no? You know. And again, this is all voluntary. I will hurt my feelings if you don't use it. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking 30 minutes because it's just a few pages of reading, buzz through your vocab list, and then uh, translate to either a verse or two each week. And if you find it beneficial just to use part of this each week, that's fine too. It's all that's all up to you. And I'll also offer this if you want to email me your copy each week or give it to me at church, I can look it over for you and I'll give you suggestions. So. Again, this is all voluntary. Um, it's up to you. So, I, I think it'd be a good way to uh, just to keep fresh. Just maybe pick an evening each week, or wake up at four o'clock in the morning with David, and it'll be sometime in August or very early September. But we haven't actually nailed a date down yet. So, ten weeks. That'll give you some time if you want to take a break and then jump into it, and then a little break afterwards. But the main thing is, use something this summer. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. If you say, okay, I've, I've learned how I don't ever want to preach a sermon in my life. <laughs> I hate this stuff. But you still spend a year on it. So why waste it? You know, keep it fresh. So. All right. So we've done the housekeeping stuff. Any questions so far? The week after the final. Yeah, is that what we have? And I know it's running into all my stuff, my dad's stuff, because I know everything's getting pushed out way, you know, way beyond. But yeah, week after the final. Yeah, we'll say Sunday. I'm always reluctant to say Sunday because I don't want you guys, you know, I want you guys to be hopefully thinking about church on Sunday. Like I always am. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you want to hand it to me on Sunday, that's fine. You know, it's not like, you know, in class where it's like if you turn it in at 12.01, you fail. You know, it's not like that. So. <laughs> Finals do this Sunday. Or, sorry, not, not tomorrow, but a week from today. A week from today, yeah. And then um, the extra will be the week after. Right. Yep. And then that can raise your, if you, if you I, I left the criteria on how to do it. If you meet all those criteria, um, it doesn't have to be the best people in the world, but if you meet those criteria, they can raise your uh, grade pretty significantly. So, might as well do it. Wendell? Um, do you have uh, the schedule, the latest schedule? It's just to be just one page. Yeah, it looks like this. If not, I can give you one after class, but below it, it has all the uh, instructions for the book review, or the, the article review. Yeah, I have to do Okay. Yeah.
And there's a yeah. error, or there's a typo on there, proof texting. This should be proof texting. The reason why it's a good article, it just helps you, uh, it reminds you, oh yeah, I need to be careful about the way I make judgments about what's happening in the Greek language. Because it's an example of a case where uh, people just jump straight to a conclusion about a particular pronoun. And they said, this is what it is. And then everyone, some guy said it, and then everyone said it after him. And then no one looked a few words above it to see it was meaning something else, you know. Yeah, yeah. Even I, I used to think that too, yeah. But it seems pretty clear in the construction. Again, in this, in the review article, in the review of the article, you have the freedom to disagree. Obviously, you're not going to fail it if you disagree with the with their thesis. But at least want you to be uh, alerted to it. All right. Any questions? We're good. All right. Well, we'll end up. We'll end a little early today, so don't worry. This is everything you've already learned. And you're going to be so mad at me that we're covering it again because it's going to be so boring because you're going to remember it all. And you're going to tell me to move on. Is that correct? <laughs> so yeah, if you want to have your TNT out, uh, make notes, or it's all up to you. If you just want to look at the PowerPoint. Because it is everything we've covered. Just try, I've tried to condense it down to things that I thought were essential these necessary things out of these necessary things. So the Greek verb basics. Um, we've seen that Greek verbs, they function just like English verbs, don't they? There's no tricks there, is there? You know, you have person, you have number, um, tense voice and mood, etc. So if you saw the uh, runs in, in uh, he runs in English, okay, that would have a, a person and number, right? It would have a tense. Uh, a voice in that case, and a mood, and a lexical form, run, or to run. And then the inflected meaning, he runs. <laughs> so similar, or is it the same? We've also seen that a, a verb is a word that describes action or state of being. Okay. So again, this is where the ons come. Uh, we've also seen that Greek verbs are unique. We've already seen one case in which they're unique. Um, temporal, when I say temporal, what do I mean? Time. That's just a fancy way of saying it. It sounds much better than saying time, you know. More syllables. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Temporary, temporal. Temporal, eternal. So that's a nice, if you're preaching, those are, you know, maybe add that in your outline. Your kids understand it. No, not yet. <laughs> Um, temporal. I, I'm use, I, some words I do use on purpose because you'll see them all over the commentaries and, and the grammars and stuff like that. Temporal reference is flexible in the Greek tense forms. What's one example that we've seen of that so far? What, um, no, that's for uh, voice, but for, for time, the idea of time or tense. Aspect, yeah, aspect was the big topic, but uh, I think I was talking to Adam about it. With aspect, it's kind of confusing when it got introduced, right? Okay, it's confusing to almost everybody, so you're not alone. Um, the best way to handle it with first-year guys in Greek class is not to say, okay, here's our system of aspect theory. Let's teach it to you now. I don't think it's a good approach. And a lot of the new grammars coming out are doing that. Um, Stanley Porter's, which he has a ton of great work, and I really appreciate what he's done. But his grammar, I think, is a little too heavy-duty for guys who are taking it for the first time. 
because he's introducing a huge system for the verbal aspect network and it's just too much in my opinion. You need to learn morphology and vocabulary in your first year and not worry about tons of aspect categories. Um, so the best way to introduce it to new guys is to do it deductively. Okay, here's a peculiar instance. Why is it acting like this? So we've only seen one so far really and it's the historical use of the present tense. Okay, so that's what I was getting at there. So there's some flexibility where it's a, you know, what we recognize as a present tense form but it's referring to a past event. So there's like, okay, so it's a little bit unique already that we're seeing. And we'll see more things like that as we go um, on to the other tenses. Does that make sense for right now? Cool. We're going from two, or one to three, there we go. <laughs> the makeup of a Greek verb. Yeah, I am reading that right, okay. A Greek verb is made up of three parts. Stem, connecting vowel, personal endings. And again, this is just what's in the, the uh, summary of the Greek tense formation, what we covered earlier. So three basic parts, though. We'll use our uh, favorite verb, lou. So the, uh, the tense, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the uh, stem, tense stem, connecting vowel, and the personal ending. Okay. Again, this is old stuff. And uh, it is important, I'll, I'll, I will emphasize this. It says the uh, stem is the part of the verb that carries the basic meaning. So right there in lieu. So while things after that stem can change, the semantics, okay, the meaning is going to be found in that part of the verb. Okay. Who's doing it, who it's being done to, etc. will be at the end. Okay. Parsing Greek verbs. Without looking at the uh, board, we have, what's the first category for parsing a Greek verb? Person. Mood. Yeah, sorry. There you go. So straightforward stuff. The lexical form of a verb is always what? First singular present indicative. What's missing, or what would you expect to be in that, that answer? Well, I got present there. So first singular present indicative. The voice. Yeah, because the lexical form could be a passive form, if you look it up in the, in the lexicon or the dictionary. Just like er kamai, amai is a passive ending, but it's still the lexical form of that verb. Which would mean that verb is probably what? Deponent. And we'll cover that in a minute too. And there we go again, the lexical form of a verb is always the first singular present indicative. Other features of the verb... Other features of verbs, um, voice and mood. We already talked about tense a minute ago, uh, but now the voice and the mood. Um, you can read the, the board, but how would you put it in your own words? Well, what's voice? Perspective. Perspective. Uh, the reader, the reader or writer. Okay, yes, that's good. Now, what could we be more, more even specific than that? 
You think of anything, Josh? Voice. Put voice in your own words. Use your own voice. Okay, cool. Okay, so you want answers, that's fine. Um, voice is uh, basically um, who, who's receiving the action or who's doing the action. Okay, so the voice, the verb. Um, he, he, uh, he throws, that's uh, usually the best example, that's what everyone uses, it's, it's a good one. Um, uh, he throws the ball um, or he was thrown. <laughs> I don't, I, can't, I don't trust him as far as I can throw him, you know. Uh, so active, the active voice, he throws. So the subject, he, is doing the throwing, active. And uh, passive voice is he was thrown, okay. So say I'm the subject, I am thrown. I'm being passive there. I don't want to be thrown, but I'm being thrown anyway. <laughs> and someone else is doing that to me or something. Okay, so that's the voice, the voice of the verb. And the mood is the relation of the verbal action to reality. Does anyone have a way to put that in your own words? Okay. Yeah. Um, with uh, mood, it's kind of hard to, okay, usually, we, or a lot of times we can learn by learning the contrast or learning the, you know, what it's not and what it is. You guys have only learned um, one mood so far, indicative. So it's hard for me to explain its contrary. But uh, so you have, I'll just use uh, one example, or one example, yes. Uh, you have the indicative mood, and you also could have the imperative mood. Imperative mood is what? A command, yeah, or commandment. Um, so the difference between indicative, indicative could be more corresponding to reality, like, like you said, Jesus spoke. That's just, that's just pretty much corresponding to reality. Okay, he spoke. But, or, so with the imperative, it's a command. So would it be like, speak. So said, throw the ball. Yeah. Like, yeah, I say. Just saying, like, throw the ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if I say, Josh, throw the ball, and that's the imperative mood. Or I could say, Josh, threw the ball. That's speaking of something that happened in reality. Josh, threw the ball. No problem. Josh, throw the ball. At that point, you have the choice to what? Yeah, are you, yeah those are strong words for me. <laughs> um, yeah, you have the option of saying, I don't want to throw that ball. So it's corresponding to uh, wish or desire in that case. But it could be, it could, might not happen in reality. Yeah. So, like in English, where you have um, imperative sentences and declarative sentences, mm -hmm. the indicative would be a declarative. Declarative. Yes, that's a that's a good word to use. Yeah. Yes. Declares it declares something that's happening or happened, or it's, it indicates indicative. Yeah. Did you raise your hand, Josh? Okay. Um, does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Yeah. 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 That's why we're going back over because we're not in a we're not in a rush. Um, 
Yeah, and that, this is that's a basic way of explaining because there could be areas where it's more complicated than that, or more maybe some exceptions to those rules or those ideas. <clears throat> but yeah, for right now it's pretty simple though because you only you've only learned indicative at this point. That's all you'll cover until I'm not even sure what chapter made chapter 25 something like that. So. No, no. Okay, this might, Bob. This might help you um, as an illustration. Uh, you've probably all heard that the epistles often have a general um, pattern they use of declarations of theology or truth about the Christian life or about God and Christ, and then the next half of the epistle will have commands for how to live as Christians. So. A lot of times they'll categorize it, they'll say <clears throat> the indicative and then the imperative. And that's how they'll break down the epistles. <clears throat> Again, you can't break the epistles quite down just like that, especially Hebrews, because there's indicative, indicative, command, indicative, indicative, command. It's kind of like a sermon. But uh, a lot of epistles you can do that with. So it's the reality, indicative, of what God has done for the believer in salvation and what Christ has done on the cross. So a lot of those verbs will be indicative, okay, or declarative. And then you move on to the next part of the epistle, husbands love your wives, imperative mood. So one definitely corresponds to reality. The other one, hopefully we'll love our wives, but those are the imperative moods. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay. So, so if you had a, a sentence with a clause, say, like, because of this, mm -hmm. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, that the, it will it will clear up the more you do it, but uh, that's why I think reality could be misleading. But I think it's ultimately it's a good word to use. So but indicative mood, I'm just talking about different words. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, indicative mood is sort of like observational of what the reality is happening at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes, yeah. So indicative is probably more of a um, story or reality of what's happening. Yes. Narrative. <coughs> yes, yeah, story is a good word or because... Statement of fact. Yeah, statement of fact, story is good, um, teaching, those are all good words to describe the indicative. Yeah, yeah, there's uh, the subjunctive mood, which is used um, to a lot of times express just uh, a wish. Um, and it's, it's kind of similar to the imperative sometimes, but um, it's such and such happen in order that such and such will happen. So it's kind of like the, the in order of that mood, if you wanted to describe it that way. Um, it's used with Hena clauses all the time. Um, and there's optative mood. And uh, the other ones are escaping me. But, uh, and then participles, when you, when you parse participles, they really don't have mood, but you still put participle in the uh, uh, mood category. But so, yeah. But that, that's a, that's a good understanding of it. Yeah, and you will, like I said, you'll find exceptions to that later on. But that's a good foundation for understanding it. What you just said. So declaring statements. Um, if you read narrative, you'll see tons of indicatives, tons of indicatives. But then when Jesus says, "Go and sell everything you have," that's an imperative. 
but a lot of the storyline is going to be, well, I say all the storyline is going to be indicative. And maybe possibly subjunctive, but usually it's going to be the indicative. So, yeah, that's a good foundational understanding of the mood. Um, okay, yeah. I won't go too deep into that, but it's going to be based on the ending or things happening after the stem. Um, the imperative can be tricky because some of the forms are identical to the indicative, but the context will tell you, or the commentaries will have debates about it. <laughs> so, yes, indicative, no, it's imperative, indicative, imperative. So, but it's most of the time pretty clear. And the subjunctive, you'll have uh, any other subscript hopping in there a lot of times in places that you'll it'll signal, oh yeah, that's subjunctive, or a lengthened vowel, that kind of thing. So there'll be stuff in the morphology that will most of the time tell you what, what mood it is. So <coughs> we have the pain for the indicative mood. Is there another one for the imperative mood? Yes, yes. So we'll be able to see. Yeah, you'll see it. You'll see it clearly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the hardest part for me learning Greek was uh, keeping the uh, tense formation in check. The, the mood, discovering the mood usually wasn't the problem for me. So I don't think that'll be a problem for you either because it's, it's pretty straightforward. Now the air is tense with all the changes that take place with the stem. This part right here, when that starts changing, that's when it's tough. Okay, when the stem starts changing. This stuff over here is pretty consistent, the stuff that happens after the stem. So I don't think you'll struggle with finding the mood. Again, you will have those debates about is this imperative or is this indicative in a few cases, but it'll be pretty clear to you. Does that make sense? I don't mind taking time with this. This is that's why we're doing this. So, because I don't know what you guys would actually have to to bring up. <clears throat> okay, we'll keep moving. If you have any more questions, um, we also know this. We know this by default in English. The uh, subject needs to agree with the verb um, in person and number. So obviously, we say he throws. We don't say I throws because that doesn't agree in person and number. Um, same thing with Greek. Same thing with Greek is the, the subject will agree grammatically, not, you know, might not doctrinally or, you know, on every, you know, all their hobbies, <laughs> but grammatically it will agree. So it's, import it's important to agree in, in language grammatically, but if you don't agree with your wife grammatically, it's not that big of a deal. So. <laughs> All right, here's a checkup. <clears throat> this would be a good question. What voices have we covered this semester? We've, we've talked about what voice is. You have active or passive voice. And, yeah. I'm about to press the button. <laughs> active, passive, middle, deponent. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. So those are your voice options. So when you're parsing, those are your options. For voice, when you get to mood, you have what? how many options? One. One. So that makes it easy for you right now. Okay, good. <clears throat> what moods have we covered so far this semester? And... All right. <laughs> what tenses have we covered this semester? What tense forms? I like that term better, tense forms that we covered this semester. Uh, well, yeah, that that's an indi that's a, uh, indicates what? I almost said indicative, but that would be equivocation. 
Present tense? Well, just, just, just stick with the time category or temporal categories. Present and future. What else? Now, middle, middle's what, what would middle fit under? under? What's that? <laughs> Help not. No, um, uh, middle. Voice. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's why we're doing this again, because it took me a while to keep it all under and check, too. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm right with you guys. Um, yeah, it's present and future. That's it this semester. That's it. Yes. Okay, I'll say it this way. Historical use of the present tense would be an option for the present tense. So it's a, for example, I want to use these words. Yes, translational option. Um, Okay, I'll, I'm going to introduce two words to you because you will see them in your study of Greek. Um, you guys can handle it. It's not bad. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's a great way. Yes. I'll give you two words. This, you you going to write down what Josh has said? <laughs> Here's a, a faster way of saying it. And if you say these words in the context of the verbal system, if you're talking to your Greek prof or, or whoever about verbs, if you say these two words, then they'll know what you're talking about, okay? Uh, I'll say that. I'll add this there. So there's semantics and pragmatics, okay? If you want to forget these words for now, fine, but these are just easy ways of keeping it categorized. Semantics, that's going to be the meaning embedded in the actual letters, in the morphology, okay? So we know that the present tense, how do you form the present tense? You have the stem, connecting vowel, ending, okay? That's the morphology. So in that is embedded the idea of, okay, it's the present tense, that's how we learned it. Um, but then the pragmatics will be what Josh said. I don't even remember what he said, but it was good. <laughs> so these are going to be So under pragmatics, it's going to be the context. Um, primarily, these two. So the context and lexical nuances of the verb. So. But anyway, you can forget this for right now if you want, because that won't be on the test. But those are those are going to be categories that you will run into the more you study Greek. So. But the main thing you need to know right now, back to the checkup, the simple stuff. We've covered two tenses so far this semester, the present and the future. For instance, when you get to the test, you're going to have how many options for the, the parsing of a verb when it comes to tense? Two. Pretty, that makes it pretty simple and straightforward, okay? So you're not thinking, oh, is this aorist imperfect or perfect or pluperfect? And you're going on and on. So you don't have to worry about any of that. We'll take them as they come. It's really not that bad, I promise. <clears throat> We're doing it. We're doing it step by step. So the stuff that you thought was hard your first week, so simple now. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So what voices have we covered? Active, passive, middle, and deponent. What moods have we covered? Indicative. What tenses have we covered? Yeah. Present and future. 
And uh, oh, I thought I put it on there, but uh, for uh, the uh, voice, the the deponent is going to account for I think it's seventy five percent of the of the middle forms. Because we said, well, how do you find middle? It's going to be a lot more uh, rare. So you're going to if it's the lexical form is passive, then you can probably guess it's going to be deponent. Okay. So erkamai. If you see erkamai, passive le uh, lexical form, but it's going to be a uh, active meaning. So therefore deponent. Welcome, Rob Smith. Do <clears throat> you guys want to take a little break? I think we should take a little break. Yes. Oh, we're taking a break now, Rob. <laughs> but you're about to get some good stuff. It's coming.
We just have a few more minutes left of review, and then we'll go on to some fun stuff. All right, is, is things, are things basically clear right now? Because I know this is new information. Um, I can easily take it for granted and not explain it clearly, so I want to make sure you guys got it. <coughs> are we at the point where I need to either say a different way, or what do you guys think? Feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty good? Right now? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, vocab and paradigms. I'm telling you, man. Um, So this is the teacher telling you you can to do that. I, that's, we are covering the grammar because I think it's very important. That's why I'm talking about it right now. But when you get to the test, you guys are going to probably remember the mood and stuff like that, like, at least how it works. That's active. That's passive. But the morphology, if you don't got the uh, paradigms, you don't have the vocab, you won't be able to get it. So paradigms and vocab. We've already talked about this, so I'll flip through it. How is the present active indicative formed in Greek? Primary active endings. Primary. How is the present? I say that because of the next question. How is the present middle deponent passive formed? So basically, the same thing you just said, except. Secondary. Or, uh, so what is the stem? Stem. Well, primary what? Primary passive endings. Yeah, and there we go. I have that quote. Approximately 75% of the middle forms that you will encounter are going to be deponent. Okay? So that makes that uh, a little bit simpler for you. Okay? Like, where is it going to be middle? I don't know. The formation of the future. Okay, what does it say? The future what? Future active middle. What's missing? Passive is missing. You all got that? The passive is not there because we have not learned the future passive yet. So it's one less thing for you to worry about. Amen, Kai, amen. Formation of that is the future active tense stem, which for, for Luo would just be Lu again. And then the tense formative, sigma, connecting vowel, primary, personal endings. So that's carefully worded there, primary, personal, because the future active middle is can either take those for the active, take the active forms, primary, or the passive forms. Okay. Now, does that make sense when I say passive forms? 
I'm just using passive to cover all the middle deponent and passive categories, okay? It's just a short way of saying it. And if you look at your list of principal parts for a Greek verb, like in the lexicon, amounts is book, there's going to be six, either under each verb, there's going to be either six verbs listed all out, or there might be some, some dashes indicating where verbs might have gone, but there'll be six of them. If you, are, if you get stuck on how a future tense is formed for a particular verb, look up that list, look at the second one in, and that's going to tell you the future tense, the future formation of that verb. What about contract verbs? We've learned that a contract verb is a verb whose stem ends in a, or an, alpha, epsilon, or, Alpha, <laughs> alpha, epsilon, or omicron. omicron. You can think of any examples at the top of your head of a contract verb? What's that one? Agapo, that's how you'd find it in translation, but what's its lexical form? That's the noun, the verb. Agapao. Yep. So you have that alpha hanging out there. Um, after the stem, or the, at, the, at the conclusion of the stem. And we call it contract verbs because they're signing a deal with something, right? No. It's, it's a grammatical term, a contraction, okay? The vowels are changing, being lengthened, etc. So you're correct. Alpha, Epsilon, or Omicron? A-E-I-O-U. A-E-I-O-U, <laughs> It's a few of those, yeah. So contract verbs, so when does contraction occur? When does the vowel lengthen? When does it change? If you want to put it in your own words. This is, this is key for the contract verbs. Isn't it just the, the, the vowel after the stem ends in alpha, epsilon, or omicron, and mm -hmm. another vowel follows it? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, so you have agapao. You have agapa would be the stem. Then you add, uh, the stem, the endings are gone. You add an amai to that. That a at the beginning of amai is going to clash with that alpha, and changes are going to happen. Okay, just like when two cars crash, all kinds of changes happen. <laughs> um, so that's the idea there. Contraction occurs when those two things collide. Okay, that's when the vowels change. So there you go. And I mentioned that the lexical form of contract verbs will always include the contract vowel. Okay? So agapao, you'll find it just like that in the lexicon. Agapao. But when you find it in your, in your text, when you're translating, will that contract vowel still be there? It will have contracted. So that's why you have that example. Agapo, just like you said originally, Josh. Agapo, didaskalus. Which means, well, parse the first the verb. I love the well, how do you parse the noun there? Yes, I love teachers. teachers. Yep, that's Mr. Carver's. Yeah.
<laughs> and the historic use of the present tense, we talked about this as uh, how the uh, tense formation or the, the tense forms can be used flexibly or are used flexibly by the Greek authors. Um, so it's where it's a present tense form that's referring to a past event. And it's usually found in what type of genre? Narrative. Yeah, so in the Gospels. Um, you can find a creative way to mark this in your translation. Either you can use an abbreviation like I used last week, which I don't remember, like H something, keep going on. Or the NASB, if you notice. I'll make a side note. Um, if you, it's good if you pick out your uh, Bible translation, whatever you use, the ESV, the NASB, or if you're going to be starting to read a new one, read the uh, preface first. And they'll talk about their translation technique. It's pretty cool what, they, what they'll describe in there. So, for instance, the NASB, if you read the preface to that, they say that we mark historical use of the present tense with a star. So if you pull out your NASB, you pull up to the Gospel of Matthew, almost on any page, and you'll probably find a star hanging out there somewhere that you've never seen before. <laughs> and that's where their way of marking the historical use of the present tense. But you can find it your own creative way. That's the end of the show. Um, are there any questions about that stuff now? No, I can't. <laughs> I'm about what this. page is that? It's on page 32. Um, I'm trying to remember how to interpret the chart in view of the contracts. Yeah, so like what direction everything goes. And Okay. Yeah, so for the contract verbs, if you have your TNT, page 32, um, there's vowels here. These right here and these up here, are going to tell you, or the, yeah, these right here in the middle, I'll put it this way, are going to tell you what changes take place when this vowel hits that vowel, for example. So I'll just pick one example. Whenever an omicron meets an epsilon, it's going to turn into a ooh. That, that sound is going to become ooh. Instead of ah-eh, it'll sound like ooh. Of the big one. So he chose some, the, the workbook here chose some common uh, changes. So that ending of that, when they meet together, it will be uh, ooh mm -hmm. on, the, on the contract. Yeah, so when you actually find the verb, okay. it's going to be ooh <coughs> instead of ah-eh. <coughs> okay, that helps. Yeah. Why is the alpha alpha? I'm not sure. I think it just uh, <coughs> stays alpha in that case. I think maybe that's going to be in like an oida thing where oida comes in to play. No, that wouldn't be an example. You said when the alpha meets an epsilon, it makes the ooh? Oh, when the omicron meets an epsilon. If an alpha meets an epsilon, based on the chart, it just, the alpha swallows the epsilon. It's not very nice. What's the meanest vowel, though? Doesn't take any prisoners. Omega, Omega yeah. It's a strong vowel and it eats up the other vowels. Cool. Does that answer your question? Okay. I just want to make sure I understood. Yeah, no problem. <coughs> yeah, and if you looked at the top of that page, play rao, that's a contract verb that stem ends in <coughs> omicron. So there you go, play ra. Can you think of any personal endings that start with epsilon? Or connecting vowels that are epsilon? Eta, yeah, always say ama, eta. 
So if you found that in, in a, as his contracted form, it would be play rute in that case. So instead of being play raete, it'd be play rute. Okay. That's all that is, and you'll you will recognize it even if you don't remember all the rules. That's why I said originally, as long as you can catch that personal lending hiding or hiding in there, or not hiding very well, <laughs> it's kind of sticking out there. So then you'll be okay if you don't remember all the the rules there. Okay, any other questions? Any other blanks that you guys had in your workbooks, or any translation questions you guys had, or now would be a good time to do it. Um, as far as I know, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll tell you what, um, I'll, meet, I'll get with you after class, we'll fill those in. Okay. If, since it's that many pages. Just remind me because I could easily forget. Um, Josh, did I show you? Did you see the summer Greek thing? Were you in the room? The summer Greek idea? Yeah. Okay, good. That's also going to have some recommended resources. Bob, did you have another question? So I won't move on unless you guys still have another um, question. Did you want us to memorize any of these terms? No. <laughs> no, we're going to go with Albert Einstein on that and uh, keep it as a reference. Yeah, that'd be cruel and unusual, <laughs> as if it's not already, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, Mounts has really helped out in uh, cutting down memorization. He really mm -hmm. has. Because if you look up, well, you, Mike showed you that. I had Mike show you guys that page is literally this big, full of paradigms with eight-point font. That's the old way of doing it, and Mounts has a much better way of doing it. Okay, any questions on the workbook? Any Things that just really are bugging you? We're mainly covering just the verbal system on this last test. That's, yeah, I should, I, I should have mentioned that. That's exactly right. For the test, I'm mainly worried about the verbs. I mean, you're still going to have to translate nouns and parse a few nouns, yeah. but when it comes to, you know, displaying what you've learned, I really want you to hit the verbs pretty hard. Hone. Um, I have to look, it was probably the personal pronoun. What, what chapter are you in? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Haas would be the lexical form. Um, it could be any of the three genders. It's a relative pronoun, so it's not uh, stuck with one gender. Um, the masculine, feminine, or neuter. No voice or mood because it's the pronoun. And then of whom or whose for the... If I just put a dash for gender, would that be okay? I would I would put MFN there. Okay. That way... Is if if I were reading it, I would think that you would, you you didn't really know, remember that there was gender and, and pronoun, so.
yeah, you for for parsing, yeah, page fifty nine. You could pick one for the parsing there, and it wouldn't be wrong, because we don't know the context. So. Yeah, remember well, that goes for the uh, the noun chart, right? What's that? What's the bottom of the noun chart for the uh, for the genitive plural? And the article own own own, or tone tone tone, yeah. The genitive, you own it. That's the best way to remember it. <laughs> Borrow it. Cool, any other questions? These are good questions. This is what we're spending time on today. While you're thinking of questions, I'm going to pull something out here. Unless you guys know how to pull up the computer, church computer. I'm pulling out speakers unless you guys know how to. Okay, yeah, I have a lot of technological limitations. Ah, yes. Correct. Correct. Good. Data plural feminine, and that's what declension? Third. Yep. And what's the stem? Of that word, of that noun. Nuke, yep. No, with a, a kappa. He's asking, yeah, go ahead, sir. Josh, I think, I think I'm okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, you said upsilon, right? Yeah, yeah, new new upsilon kappa. Now, of, I'm sorry. Yeah, the the uh, the stem is nuke. The lexical form, however, nukes. Oh, it is. Nukes. Yes. I'm sorry. I was doing technological things and then <laughs> answering questions at the same time, which is a bad idea for me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just so you know, nukes will be on the final in some form or fashion, just because. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, what's what's the uh, nominative singular masculine for a third declension? The first, the very first one, sigma. So. Yeah, that's that's right. Yep. Yeah, so there's that, there's the the uh, the stem, and then you add that um, 
dominant singular masculine for a lexical form combines with the kappa, becomes nukes. So even the lexical form has already changed. The very first you know, part has already changed. All right, any other questions? Keep them coming. Yeah, it'll be on the final somewhere in some form or fashion. Probably, I'm just guessing in a you know dative plural or something like that. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to recommend some resources. Some are going to be on the summer uh, summer thing. Um, oh, I didn't bring it, but uh, Septuagint. If you want to, we talked about Septuagint last week. Um, if you guys want to uh, study that at all this summer, if you have free time. Some of you are saying, no way. Some of you are saying, okay, that sounds cool. I'll buy the book and let it's on the shelf like I've done. <laughs> um, this is a really good introduction to the Septuagint by uh, Moises uh, Silva and Karen Jobes, however you pronounce her last name. Um, it's a woman, yeah. But she's just describing history of Septuagint, so I guess it's okay. <laughs> but uh, she also has written... But, um, but yeah, that's really good. And this is... I This guy makes him mad several t places in this book because he doesn't like the Bible that much. But he does do a really good job explaining how the Septuagint, um, the Septuagint's role as you do New Testament studies. So I don't read it for spiritual edification, but it is very good for uh, bringing out the details. Okay. And uh, I also recommend that you, uh, at some point, buy a Greek Testament. Who has a Greek Testament? Seniors, do you have one, David? Sort of. Sort of. It's uh, interlinear. Okay, burn it. <laughs> um, if you have third edition, fine. If you have fourth edition, fine. If you have fifth edition, fine. Right now, okay. I have the fourth. That's what I've been using, um, and I'll probably keep using it for a while because I don't have a fifth yet. But um, so yeah, just get a Greek Testament, uh, get a Nestle Allon or or the UBS. UBS is better for. Uh, beginning Greek students, because the apparatus at the bottom is much easier to use. Okay, The DNA, they call it, the Nestle Allon, is, uh, it just looks like an alien came down here and wrote some footnotes on the bottom of the page. <laughs> so it's not uh, useful for beginning students. And it's not useful to me right now, it's because I don't know all the abbreviations. Um, this summer, I'd also recommend... Um, because the, because the pace we're going in Greek right now, it's slower than usual, which is good. Okay, I'm not, I'm not uh, diminishing that. That's a good pace we're using. But because of that, I want you to keep going and maybe start using some tools. This is an example of a, of a thorough exegetical commentary. Okay? If you read this, a quote from this in a sermon, it's not going to work. This is going to be for your study. Okay? But this is how it works. He's going to have the Greek text at the top, so like a running Greek text for the particular book he's going through, and then very detailed notes about the, the text. Okay, This is not my favorite exegetical commentary, but it's a good example of what they're like. Okay, so I'll pass it around. Uh, I don't know. It's just book by book. My favorite series is, I don't know. I, I like the Baker exegetical series a lot. Um, there's a brand new one came out, well, maybe a couple of years ago now, but the Zondervan exegetical is really good. So that's the uh, that's the Z E C N T. That's the newer one. They're pretty good. They're 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 good for uh, newer Greek students too. The way they handle things, they're really uh, laid out well. That one is not laid out very well. It's it's hard to read. 
the new zoner bin it is. Um, if you if you are writing these down, I'll say a few more. Um, you can look them up. But the, yeah, the B E C and T is really good. That's I really like that one a lot. Um, and if you pull if you type in B E C and T on Amazon, it'll come up. So um, and uh, the P N um, P N T C yeah pillar New Testament commentary. That's really good. Um, I don't like that one for only one. I, I like it, but I would have one criticism of it. They uh, transliterate all the Greek words. So if you're going to make one for layman to read, I would recommend you transliterate it, and then you put the Greek word after that, so way it catches both audiences. Um, I just don't like transliteration all that much. But uh, um, And the NICNT is really good, too, NICNT. And again, it all, I think you guys have heard this recommendation, but with commentaries, um, it's rare that someone will say, go ahead and buy the whole set, the whole commentary set. Um, they'll say, go for the best commentary on a particular book of the Bible. So if you're studying Ephesians, then find the best commentary on Ephesians. Um, and it could be a part of a series, or it might be a standalone commentary. It just depends. So I would say that's how the best way to build your commentary library. There are a few sets that I want to have completed, like the B, E, C, and T, and I already have William Hendrickson's, which is really good too. But uh, so yeah, commentaries. So I at least say that main, the main point is start interacting with exegetical commentaries this summer if you have time. Um, maybe as you go through summer Greek, the the thing. If you're in Second Corinthians, then maybe pull out a Second Corinthians commentary just on the verse that you're studying right there, and just buzz through it and see how they treat it. You know, don't do an in-depth study if, unless you want to. Um, just see how they work. How they work. For the summer Greek, I recommended a few resources as well. This is a very dated lexicon, but I really like it. Um, Gingrich Shorter. It's basically, Wendell, it's a shorter version of BDAG. Okay? So it, it doesn't have near as much detail, but it's, it covers all the words in the New Testament, and it helps you with tough forms, and it gives you good references too. So Gingrich Shorter, it's called. Um, I have it on the bibliography for the summer Greek, so you can look it up there. Um, but this is from the church library, so if you want to look at it, it will be there too. Englishman's Greek Concordance is really good. It covers all the words in the New Testament and all their occurrences. This is a really old copy. Um, but it'll give you a Greek word. And it'll tell you every word it's used in the New Testament. And this is called the Englishman's Greek Concordance because all the text after that will be in English. So you can read that phrase from the English just like a Strong's Concordance. And you can catch the context if you know it from that book. But the main thing is you'll know everywhere that Greek word is used. Okay? Yes? Is there any um, reason to prefer that over Strong's? Uh, yes, yes. Because Strong's will give you the code, the number code for the Greek or Hebrew word, but it, it takes longer to go look up that word in the back of the concordance. Um, so it'll just take longer in your studies. You know how to read Greek words, so you might as well go straight to the Greek word. Yeah. Strong concordance is great. I mean, I'm not going to say it's terrible, but hey, if you know Greek, you might as well use a Greek concordance because that's going to be cutting out a lot of your time. You know, Robert? Burner. <laughs> no, I mean, they're, they're good. I never, I never use them. Um, that's just a personal choice. It's up to you. I used it for one reason, or I have not used it for one reason. I just want to be able to keep fresh because I don't want to rely on those, basically. Um, 
and I got them from my teacher basically. He, he always slammed them too, but um, he said they're like crutches, analytical lexicons and interlinears like that. If you want to use them, I mean, we're not going to kick out of the church. So. <laughs> but yeah, that's why I say I recommend just get a, a full Greek Testament. And you can still look up words. That's why I say get a lexicon too to go with it. Um, yeah, so I'm partly joking about their interlinears. You guys know that, right? But at the same time, I'm, you know, definitely don't rely on them, okay? So there's a balance there. That makes sense? Okay. And with lexicons, too, I recommended this last week. This is really good. It's in biblical order for the New Testament. So, for instance, Acts here. It's going to go through the whole book of Acts, every single verse of Acts, and tell you every single word that mounts does not tell you. Okay? So it's a way, a, a way to read through the Greek text rapidly. If you, because it's good to do a slow read and rapid reads. So that's what that is helpful for. This is uh, Michael Burer and Jeffrey Miller, a new reader's lexicon. There's a couple older ones out there. By uh, one is by Saki Kubo. It's good, but I like some of the improvements this one's done. I always try to be careful about, you know, making fun of the old stuff. That's what people are doing that a lot. It's like, oh, the old stuff, and it's a waste of time. But, hey, I mean, they built a foundation for us to study today. So I'm not going to make fun of them. Um, this is a Greek concordance. It doesn't give you any English. <laughs> so this is like Strong's, but all in Greek. So this is what you want to work toward ultimately. But it's not going to be as helpful to you as the Englishman's right now. Um, Well, concordance, they won't give you definitions. They'll just give you the word and tell you, yeah, and tell you where it's included in the New Testament. So this is going to be the best one to use, um, ultimately, because it's going to give you a better view of the context and what words are surrounding that Greek word. I almost, I forgot, I was going to read my Septuagint concordance. I have a Septuagint concordance. It's my, one of my favorite books. It's like, Literally, like, twice the size of this. It's humongous. <laughs> but that one's awesome because it'll give you the Greek word and then um, all the Hebrew words that it translates in different contexts. And it'll give you a code for it. I should have brought that in. So it'll give you, you know, um, whatever word you think of, erkamai. Yeah, and then it'll tell you all the Hebrew words that it translated in different contexts. And then on all the references below it, It'll tell you still, okay, it uses that Hebrew word, it uses that Hebrew word, or it translates that Hebrew word, etc. It gets very illuminating for studying. Very illuminating. Um, so, like on the, on the blue letter, where it uh, will tell you this is the strong number, this is, these are the different ways it's been translated. Mm -hmm. it, it does that, with, but with the Hebrew? Um, you know kind of, but it won't give definitions in that one. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not the same exact format, but the same idea. Okay. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So, but yeah, this this is all cool stuff. This is when Greek starts to get a little more fun when you're actually using it for something, you know, not just killing yourself over a random word you're parsing, nukes and uh, you know. So, it's cool stuff. I think that's all the resources. And uh, in the summer Greek, I said recommendations like you know. For this, look up this in the concordance or whatever, just so you can start to handle them a little bit and see how they work. This, by the way, is dirt cheap on Amazon because no one uses it anymore and it's super old. But I like it; it's good. So, like it's eight bucks on Amazon. I sell some old copies. 
the Englishman's Greek concordance. The the uh, the document that I'll upload will have all the bibliography information on it. Okay, cool. Um, today's agenda. I think we've done all that stuff. I was going to show you a really neat video to conclude, unless you guys have any more questions. I've already shown this to Wendale. Um, any questions before we move on? Trying to end our class with um, a way of saying, you know, that Greek studies are, are, are fun and they're important and, this, and how they can be implemented in different ways. Um, this is a video. It's a four-minute video of uh, a translation committee talking about how to translate a particular word. Um, this is the ESV translation committee. Not all of them, they're there, because Bill Mounts is actually part of it, but he's not in this video. But this is uh, later on, they're talking about revisions of the ESV, and they're voting on choices, okay, or in a particular choice here. Um, this is held at uh, Tyndall House in Cambridge, which is, that's actually where Dr. Martin is studying right now. He's not studying through Cambridge, but he's using the library. So it's a pretty, pretty neat place. Um, in this video, you'll have... Uh, Peter Williams, the guy I posted on Facebook that gave that lecture um, about Old Testament reliability and all that. Oh, oh. Um, he'll be in there. Gordon Wenham, have you guys heard of him? He's done a lot of uh, Old Testament studies and commentary on uh, Genesis and all that good stuff. And uh, some other guys you might not know, but it's pretty neat. Wayne Grudem, yeah. I will play it. The question before us today is the translation of the word slave in the Bible. There's three main Hebrew words to be considered. Ebed is the most general word. That's John Collins talking. Typically rendered servant and sometimes slave. Then for women who he are looks angry. To, typically shikha and ama are your, your standard terms. And they don't all have to be handled the same way. <laughs> all right, thank you. Now, um, I think That's others who wish Paul to House. Meeting, I'm thinking of the principal male word, Ebed, it occurs a lot in the Bible. That's Peter Williams. Times. And the majority of those, we currently have a servant. But if you were to make this word slave consistent and start using it for the verb, then you'd end up being slaves um, before God. You'd be slaving for him and so on. So I feel the most consistent way is to put servant everywhere. If you look at the dictionaries, it's quite clear but the difference between a servant and a slave is whether they are owned That's by Gordon the or whether they're paid by their employer. And it's quite clear in many passages in the Old Testament where it talks about Eved that the person who is owned is regarded as part of the property of that person. Um, I think we are getting confused and reluctant to use the word slave because we think that because there is the, I, the word slave that the Old Testament approves of slavery. Yeah, I. And I think it's very much better to say that the Old Testament is trying to improve the life of slaves rather than pretending they're not slaves. Okay? <laughs> want any sort of clarification? Oh, man, I turned that off. Okay, then, then I would ask Jack, you want to follow up with something quickly? Uh, I don't think I disagree with anything that Gordon has said, uh, and I'm not sure I disagree with very much that That's that distracting. And that's the challenge uh, that, that we're facing, and that. Anyone want to turn those off? 
No, I, I played it last night and I didn't. Uh, I didn't have it on last night. Oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> Martin said something, and yeah, I. <laughs> Even? Okay. Even? <laughs> oh, man. Wayne Graham, yeah. Don't worry, the whole prayer is not there. <laughs> now they they uh, well they they already had it, um, yeah. So they didn't they just kept it I think in that case. Yeah, so. I guess so. I mean I mean all translations have had most translations have had committees so. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to rephrase that. So, you, just Eugene, Eugene Peterson. Yeah, so. Eugene. 